Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm in the studio today with the one and only, my partner, Sean Gardner, and uh, we've got the wonderful Cody Beeson uh, turning dials and pushing buttons and stuff, trying to do his best to make it sound good, but uh, we hope you had a great weekend, the Veterans Day weekend. Um, I had the opportunity last uh, Thursday, it was, I went to my little girls, I have two little girls um, at uh, Desert View Academy. And Desert View Academy is, if you don't know about it, it's a charter school in town. And uh, they do really good stuff. What I love about them is that they always honor the military and it doesn't fall short for Veterans Day. So I was able to attend their Veterans Day ceremony and it was really quite moving, actually. The kids sang songs outside in the field and then uh, they had service members come up and, and salute them and and they had a color guard, so it was a whole deal, and it was really fun to see what they were doing and and uh, be part of that, and it really got me in the spirit of Veterans Day. Worldwide, just some uh, facts for you. We're not the only country that celebrates Veterans Day. You've got Canada, England, and Australia. They call it something different. They call it uh, Remembrance Day, and they usually take about a week to do that. So last year, my wife and I were happened to be in London, um, during Veterans Day or Remembrance Day, and they all had poppies on. They, the, the, I can't remember the organization. It's something akin to Wounded Warriors here in the United States. It's something like that. So you pay. There's vendors all around, kind of like the Salvation Army does during Christmas time. You can give them money <clears throat> um, on the streets, and they're collecting it. They put it in this fund for disabled veterans. This is over in England. And once you do that, then you can. they give you a little plastic poppy flower and then you wear that so everybody's wearing those things over in in england when we went and visited last year and i i hadn't even thought about it you know i didn't know what that was and then they explained it to us and i thought that was a really cool concept and when i told my dad about it when i got home he said oh we used to do that back back when we were little kids we would in school we would pay a penny and then they would give us a poppy and we would wear those around so i thought that was a really cool tradition i'm sad that we don't still have it and um, so anyway, that was Veterans Day. We started celebrating that in, uh, well, what we're celebrating, I think it was 19, in the 1930s is when it became a holiday, but it was in remembrance of 11-11-11-1913 when uh, the first armistice treaty was signed during uh, World War One, And um, so... Just to bring that back into to remembrance, this weekend was the opportunity to remember our veterans and, and the world at war, and uh, also the end of resolution, or the resolution of conflict that comes at the end of war, and really that's what it's about. I guess armistice is, is another word for stop fighting. I didn't realize that before either. Why are you looking at me like that? That's what it is. Obviously. I mean, the word is self-explanatory. Arm is this? Well, okay. The way, yes, you, that's how you pronounce it, and that's how it's said. But it sounds to me, when I hear it, arm desist. Like you desist in the arms that you're... Cody, is that what you hear? Oh, I mean, I don't know. We'd have to look at like the Latin root. I mean... Oh, come on. That's what it means. Nobody knew that till I said it. Any regular person. I educated the whole world right now. And don't it... You know... Sean has a... 
wonderful show for us today. This is all his brainchild. And I think you've been on this, uh, not focusing on the 99% of what, how would you say this, Sean? The 99% of things that people are focusing on in the media, you don't want to focus on. You want to focus on the 1%. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Well, and more specifically, the 1% that actually has a much closer application to our everyday life and, and uh, what we see occur in our community. For example, who paid much attention to the city council election? The city council is really important. We've got Cody Beeson sitting across the desk from us here, and he served on the city council for eight years, was it? Yeah, a couple terms. And uh, the city council has to review and approve all major spending for projects that go on in the city. So the parks that we enjoy, um, the streets that we drive over, the uh, any major structures that are um, put together by the city, like the water treatment plants, that's all based on our city council. And we've got the city manager and the procurement manager that looks at those construction sites more specifically and gets the bids, but it's the city council members that approve that. So that's a very, very important job that affects us directly as members of this community. But how much attention do we spend to the candidates running for city council? Have we ever looked at any of the debates? Did we look at their background and determine whether or not they're valid candidates? I mean, did you look at how many votes they got? I mean, a couple thousand votes decides who runs the policy, who establishes the policy. Um, I believe uh, it was former Speaker Tip O'Neill that said, coined the phrase, all politics is local. Right, so your local elected officials are the ones that you run into at the grocery store, and you tell them, "Hey, that bike path, we really need it because of this reason or that reason," and they're the ones that that you have access to. Absolutely, and and the hospital, yeah. the airport, all those things that make our day to day life easier or more and more difficult are, are because of the city council, and they have a tough job. There's a lot of time that they put into it, and they don't get compensated much. And this goes back to a point that Adam made on a previous show that he didn't believe that people running for public office should make very much money. He thought that $200,000 for somebody that was serving as uh, a governor or a president is too much because it looks more now that they're going for financial reasons than just public service. City council follows that theme, that it's just for public service, because how much does a city council member make? Or at least, how much did you make when you were a city council Same member? Same thing. It's going to be $3,600 a year. So $100 every couple of weeks, you know, 50 bucks a week. Not enough to pay for gas. But I, I kind of see where Adam... I don't want to agree with Adam here, but I, I would agree with Adam. Like, Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be worth $200 million if she's been in, in the House for 20 years. You know, like, there is definitely room in the middle to, to figure it out. And what's also interesting is when you look at the qualifications, you can't have any vested interest in uh, anything that the city is is voting on to be a member of the city council. You actually have to divest yourself of anything that would be considered inside trading. And that's a really good rule. We understand that here at the local level, but at Congress, they still don't, well, they, they may understand it, but they don't apply it to themselves. I mean, even at the statewide level, there's still conflicts of interest where people recuse themselves, but not on the national level, really. Right. And the statewide level, you know, just with this most recent election, we had Katie Hobbs that's in charge of running the election, and there's a big divide between Republicans and Democrats about whether or not um, the elections in 2020 were properly run. And you got one half saying that there's a bunch of election deniers, conspiracy theorists out there that they just won't accept the reality because they don't like the reality. 
And then there's the other side that says, well, no, there's a lot of abnormalities that we need to explain and we need to figure out and, and fix for the next election. And the Secretary of State is in charge of that election process. And so Katie Hobbs was in charge of the 2020 election for Arizona, and she's in charge of this election running for governor. And it would make sense that she would recognize a conflict of interest and recuse herself. If she has confidence in the system, why does she personally need to be there to oversee it, especially when she's running for governor? So she personally has to certify the fact that she won or lost. And that is an absolute conflict of interest that is blaring. And I'm not sure why the media didn't hold her feet to the fire a little bit more on that issue. You know, there's so much divisiveness right now in the country, and we are looking at the media and we're saying, hey, you're fake news. And you, you turn on a channel and it's hard not to see the dichotomy between CNN and Fox News. And they're, they're reporting on the same stories, but you're getting completely different narratives. And it gets you angry on either side. I'd prefer just to listen to the news. And I have yet to find an outlet, a news source that calls balls and strikes now. I want to talk about an experience that I had this week, and it, and it applies a little bit with what we're talking about right now, and that is the local elections and the propositions that we had to vote on statewide um, and how they affect us personally. So there were some propositions to increase um, fire department revenue um, through additional taxes, and there was a proposition to uh, increase the hospitality tax for other parks and recreational services here in Yuma. And I looked at both of those, and I'm leery about taxes in general just because I'm, I'm tired of my money just going into this black hole and there not being any accountability for where all the tax dollars are going. So I was very conservative in, in voting for any new tax measures. And on Monday, it kind of reinforced my skepticism. Now, I got myself into this mix. Um, I, I went boating on Monday, and I went up the Colorado River, which is such a fantastic recreational resource that we have here in Yuma. I mean, we have more water access here in Yuma than they do in Tucson. We have more recreation here for boating and, and water activities. And so I went up the river. There's about 75 miles of river between us and Quartzsite. And you can yeah, travel the whole way by boat, and I've done it. There's a lot of sandbars, and so there's a lot... A lot that you got to look out for. You're not going fast. Well, yeah. And so it depends. You got to skip over those sandbars sometimes. So um, I, I went out with a friend and we took my boat. We, we launched at Squaw Lake and uh, we went about 30 miles north towards Picacho Park. And just a mile short of getting to the park, there was a sandbar that stretched the entire width of the river. And I turned left, and that was the wrong way to turn, and I got hung up on a sandbar. And so I'm, I'm pretty far away from anybody except Picacho Park. So we pushed the boat for two hours and dug the sand around it and tried to get out. And then um, it started, the, start, the sun started to set, and I thought, okay, well, we've got to get out of here. So I could call my friend who's got a boat and come up river, but the river drops quite a bit each day. It drops probably about a foot or two each day because the height of the river is directly related to the amount of water that's released through the dam for hydroelectric power. And there's less need for that power after sunset. And so then the dam starts releasing less water and downriver we have a lower water level. And so the, the sandbars really 
if, if it was six inches underwater um, at noon, it's going to be dry sand at 11 o'clock at night. So I was a little concerned about that and didn't want to spend the night out there. I have actually spent the night on a sandbar. And by choice or necessity? No, by necessity. I got hung up on a sandbar, and you know, but I was prepared. I was going up river, and we were planning on camping anyways. We just didn't get to the campsite. We got hung up on the sandbar, and uh, yeah, when I woke up, like my boat was completely on dry land. There was no water around us, and so we pushed it off. It was, it, it was doable, but we needed a little extra help. And uh, anyway, I called my friend at the fire department at uh, the YPG fire department, great guy and, and great services there. I love firefighters. So I thought I would reach out to them. They were the closest to where we were as far as emergency responding agency that was um, near where I was. So I called him and I asked, Hey, do you guys provide any type of service where you can send a boat out from Picacho, which, you know, there are park rangers out there at Picacho that have boats and, uh, there are search and rescue offices out there. I said, do you have any contact with them where somebody can come down river a mile and help me out here? Now, I agree. For all of you that are shaking your head saying, no, this guy made his bed. He needs to lie in it. And well, oh, yes, I agree with that. But, again, I'm also a taxpayer and I'm a citizen. So the next part made me a little bit uh, leery about, you know, relying on the government to bail me out. Um, he said, no, no, we don't have anything like that. You're going to have to call the sheriff's department. So I did. I called the, sheriff, the Yuma County Sheriff's Department, and my phone was starting to get a little low on battery, so I'm getting a little, little concerned here. And uh, I let them know exactly where I was, and I said, is there a way that you can send a, a sheriff's boat to assist me? And they said, you know what, you're going to need to hang up and call back on 911. And I said, well, my phone's running low on battery. Why do I need to hang up? And they said, well, because we can't tell exactly where you are. And if you're on the California part of the river, then, then it's not us. It's Imperial Valley. And if, if you're on the Arizona side, then, yeah, Yuma County can come help you out. And I thought, well, okay, I'm on the river. That is the boundary. You're in the middle. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they said, no, you, we need to see exactly where you are. Call back on 911. We'll be able to pinpoint your location. So I could walk 10 feet to the west and call and then that would be okay. So I called back, and uh, I did walk 10 feet to the west, by the way, just to ensure that it was on Arizona territory. And uh, the 911 operator answered the phone and uh, said, do you have enough food? Do you have enough water? And I said, yes, I do. I have enough food and water. And they're like, okay, and you're not injured. No. So I appreciate that. They, they got the important things out of the way first. But then they said, well, okay, well, good luck. And I thought, well, can't, can't you, like, call a sheriff's boat to come out here? I was fully aware that I might be charged for the service because I got myself into that situation. And so heck, they're going to sh- send a sheriff's boat out here. What they told me was it's not boating season. So, unfortunately, no, we're not going to be able to send a sheriff's boat up there. Um, so uh, we can send a search and rescue team to rescue you. But we're, we're not going to touch your boat. We're not going to do anything with that. And the boat needed, I'm not going to leave it there on the sandbar. I have to get it off eventually, right? It's going to be a hazard for anybody else that's traveling on the river. Plus, I, I, I like my boat. Right. So I said, okay, so there's n- nothing that you can do. Like, I can't pay for service or there's no, I don't know, law enforcement or, or rescue service that will come up and assist me. And they said, no, no, we, we can take you personally, but nothing else. And uh, I thought, well, at least, okay, I know I'm not going to die. 
So what did I resort to? I called my son and I said, hey, um, I'm stuck up here on the river. He wasn't surprised at all to get the call. He was like, oh, again? And, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm stuck, okay. So I need you to get our friend's boat and come up here and pick me up. So my friends, they got together. My son and his, his friend as well came up. And they had to navigate the river at night, and I was a little concerned that they'd get hung up on sandbars as well, but they, they did it, right? And uh, they pulled me off, and they, they rescued me, which is a great relief to me, but it just reinforced what I've known all along, that you've got to rely on your own resources when it comes to getting in sticky situations. You can't rely on the government to bail you out, and I think that's going to be true when it comes to any natural disasters that occur. We, fortunately, we don't have them very often in Yuma, but they will occur eventually with whether it be flooding or earthquakes, we're on a major fault line, um, that you need to have your 72-hour kit and you need to rely on yourself providing for your family and not the government. Because when it comes down to it, there's still a bureaucracy involved, there's still red tape there, and it doesn't matter how well-funded the organization might be, you might find yourself out of luck and up a creek without a paddle like I did. we got to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, in studio here with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. We do estate planning, and uh, we talk about a lot of things that don't have anything to do with estate planning because, quite frankly, they're more interesting. <laughs> but estate planning is a necessary thing. It's, it's the adult thing to do. If, if you have a bank account, if you have a house, especially if you have children, think about what would happen if you got in a car accident and were incapacitated or, heaven forbid, passed away. What would your loved ones do? Would your children have a designated guardian to look after them? Would your loved ones know how to access your bank accounts and, and the title to your house or your car? Those are things that we help you set up so you can sleep good at night and just be a responsible adult. So if you have questions about estate planning, please give us a call or visit our website, yuma.law, and you can watch a, a free seminar about how estate planning can be put together and then 
come in and visit us or, or visit another attorney, but you'll understand through that seminar the basics of what type of estate planning you might want and how it all works. Back to the elections and issues that are not being talked about at all in the media, but that affect us quite closely on a personal level. So there's a proposition in here. It's, it's a 308, and we voted on it last Tuesday, and it has to do with uh, student tuition, in-state tuition for students regardless of immigration status. Essentially, if you don't have documentation that you're legally here in, in the U.S., do you get in-state tuition or not? And that's what we got to vote on. Well, I have a very personal experience with in-state tuition and out-of-state tuition because when I went to school, uh, I, initially I was living here in Yuma, Arizona, and I went to AWC. And I got in-state tuition. I was a citizen or a resident of Arizona, a citizen of the United States. And uh, I went to Arizona Western College. I thought it was a great education. It was a good starter for me because I wasn't a great student in high school. And so I needed something to kind of warm up my brain and get me ready for um, a little bit more intellectual challenge at the university level. And Arizona Western College provided me a great jumping off point. So I went to school. I applied for scholarships. I was awarded those scholarships. They never asked what race I was when I applied for those scholarships. And this was back, of course, in 2001. And uh, so I, I felt this is great. Education is something that I can attain. I grew up very poor. Um, I grew up in a trailer house in northern Idaho in the woods. And uh, I never had any aspirations of being able to go to college and pay for it because I, I knew my parents couldn't afford it. And I thought, there's no way I could afford it. I didn't even know how to, how to go about doing that. I didn't realize that there were federal grants out there and there was other student loans and, and those options. But anyway, when I attended Arizona Western College, I found that it was affordable and there were scholarships that were available for average people like me. And after a year and a half at AWC, I was actually getting full scholarships because I was really applying myself. I was getting very good grades. I was volunteering in the community a lot and there were scholarships for those types of things and so I was getting my tuition compensated or, or comped and uh, then I, I moved to Colorado I moved my family to Colorado full-time I took a job with my brother who's a veterinarian and I was managing his veterinary practice and I wanted to finish my education there in Colorado so I went to Colorado State and uh, when they told me how much it was going to cost I was dumbstruck because it was so much more it wasn't even just the difference between university and community college, but it was out-of-state tuition. So that was more than double the amount of the in-state tuition cost. And I appealed it. I said, I'm a, I'm a resident here in Colorado. I've moved my family here. I have a full-time job here. And they said, yes, but you moved from Arizona, so technically you're still an Arizona resident. And so I appealed it, and I asked the question, what does it take to establish residency? There is actually not a time frame to establish residency, and there's not ex an exact checklist I discovered, and that is still true today. You have to establish, you are there by all the evidence combined together. Is your driver's license there? Do you work there? Have you paid taxes there? Do you vote there? All those types of things you put together, and then they get to make a decision as to whether or not that qualifies for residency. And so I, you know, I showed them that I registered to vote. I had my driver's license there. I had a full-time job there. So I, when I appealed the decision, and it took a lot of work, I won on appeal, 
and I got in-state tuition. And so I finished my undergraduate degree there at Colorado State and went and moved my family to Kentucky. Now, I moved my family to Kentucky for two reasons. One was law school, and another one was I did have some family there. I had a brother there and a cousin there, and they really enjoyed living in Kentucky. We purchased a house, and uh, I got a job and, and was working as I went through law school. My daughter at the time, I had uh, two children. I had, and one was old enough to go to school. She was going to kindergarten there, and I was I was working as a legal intern, and I had a notary. But Kentucky said that wasn't enough for in-state tuition. So you had to fight for in-state tuition again there? I did. I fought for it every year that I was there. I fought for it my first year, didn't get it. I thought, okay, well, I'll fight for my second year. I appealed every time, didn't get it. I fought for it my third year. Now, at that point, I'm finishing law school, and I'm, I'm better equipped for you know the legal argument aspect of it. And uh, I even hired a lawyer. I was smart enough to know that I couldn't represent myself. And I hired a lawyer to represent me, and I still lost. And I was, I was fully intending to stay and live in Kentucky. I was certainly paying taxes because I had a job there. My wife had a job there. And uh, I didn't get in-state tuition. But, you know, there were people, there were families there, and, and the argument from the university standpoint was there were people that grew up in Kentucky. They, their families paid taxes, and that's what the school was for, was for Kentucky families that had contributed to the tuition. And I thought, well, okay, so what if somebody didn't pay taxes? What if they couldn't show you that any proof they paid taxes, either they were too poor or um, they skipped out on taxes altogether. And they said, well, we don't actually look at their tax returns. And I said, well, because I'm paying taxes and, and I'm not skipping out on them. But the, regardless, I didn't, I didn't get in-state tuition. And I was okay with that um, eventually. And it took me 10 years to pay off those loans. So I had no loans going into law school. I was able to work through my undergraduate degree. But after three years in law school, I acquired so much debt that it took me 10 years of paying about $1,700 a month to pay off those student loans. And here I am today, I'm debt-free, and I'm able to work and actually keep the money that I earn, except for the part that the federal government takes. But I look back and I look at what's going on with the student loan forgiveness, you know, $20,000 for anybody that qualifies for a Pell Grant, $10,000 if you don't qualify for a Pell Grant. And it's not the end of the world, because when you're talking about student loan debt, that's that's not that much. A lot of people graduate with $100,000 of debt. Yeah, 10 times what's forgivable, yeah. Yeah, so the original plan was to forgive all student debt, and a lot of people are arguing for that. Getting back to the local issue here in this Proposition 308, it is to grant in-state tuition to individuals regardless of their immigration status. So essentially what would happen is you'd still have to fight the same argument if you came from, say, Utah or Colorado or Kentucky to Arizona as to whether or not you qualified as a resident for receiving in-state tuition. But if you were an illegal immigrant, you would not have to make that argument based on this proposition. If you were not here legally and you had no paperwork to demonstrate that you could actually even hold a job here, and contribute to the taxes that are actually subsidizing these state universities, you would get state tuition. I think that's wrong. Uh, I've been through the system. I, did, I don't like it necessarily, but I can see where they're coming from. They are contributing tax dollars to these state universities. I think the university is very top-heavy, and they, they ex 
spend way too much money on things that don't actually contribute to a better education. But that's the system that we have. What I don't agree with is a blank check to individuals that are here that haven't contributed and cannot contribute. I think give them a, a, a cleaner path to citizenship or at least to work legally in the United States so they can contribute to the taxes that actually pay for those universities. But these types of laws would actually discourage an individual from becoming a legal citizen and actually contributing to society because you would actually benefit more from not having legal citizenship or being here properly documented and, and able to work and you'd get in-state tuition. So no, I, I disagree with that, but that's not something that a lot of people focused on and it wasn't something that uh, I heard anybody debate when we were looking at the, all the campaigns going on. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM KBLU. We've been talking a lot today about the issues that nobody else is talking about. That's uh, Sean's been on a, on a rant about that lately for the last couple of weeks, and I agree with him. I mean, uh, if you were to turn on the mainstream media, there's, it's election this, election that. And not that we're not talking about the election, but we want to focus on the more local issues, specifically the propositions um, that affect us uh, in, here in Arizona, um, the contested contested races here in Arizona. We're not going to get too much into anymore because uh, everybody else is talking about that. But there are some propositions. Uh, another one that came up, Sean, that we talked about was the potential of having a lieutenant governor here in Arizona. And I was actually, when I went through the propositions before I voted, I went through that that pamphlet that was sent out or that book. And it never occurred to me before that we didn't have a lieutenant governor. I just never thought of it because we haven't, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess we don't have a lieutenant governor. Why do we need one? But the the arguments for one were pretty compelling. It, it's akin to a president and then a vice president on the national level. So if the governor were to die, then you've got the lieutenant governor coming in. And another thing about it is the governor that's running in Arizona would have to pick a candidate to go with them. So you're, you're voting for the team just like you would for a, uh, a president, vice president on the national level. Cody, what do you think about that? Are, are we going to like offset the, uh, the cost that we spend for the Secretary of State? 
you know, because now that's one less responsibility for that position. They did explain in in the manual that came with the, the explanations, the propositions, that it was not going to be an additional expenditure. So essentially, it, it appears to me that the governor already has an administration that is essentially filling this role. They just don't have the authority to step in as governor if he were to be incapacitated or pass away. That's the way I, I understood it as well. And ultimately, I voted yes on it. I thought, why not? You know, Why not, right? Yeah, because you want the party that you voted for in power to continue in power in case a car accident, right? The person that you have running the state is one heartbeat away from not being there anymore. And if it's going to be the Secretary of State, which is currently it, you're you're switching big time as to what you voted for and, and then who the leader actually is in case something happens to that one individual that you voted into office. And that's that was the reasoning that I used as well is because in our current landscape, we have uh, we had Doug Ducey, who is a Republican, and then you had Katie Hobbs as a Secretary of State. So if something were to happen to Doug Ducey, then you're exactly right. In my mind, I thought, yeah, that's probably not what I would intend as a voter. I wanted I wanted my conservative values to be manifest in the in the gubernatorial leadership of the state. And if Doug Ducey is out of the way, I want somebody that's kind of like him to step in and fill his shoes. But the current system wouldn't allow that. It would go to the Secretary of State, who is Katie Hobbs, who's opposite of everything that Doug Ducey is. She's not pro-business. She's uh, pro-immigration, illegal immigration. Um, she's pro-stop-the-wall kind of kind of mentality and which is the opposite of of a Doug Ducey that I would I voted for and most of Arizona voted for even in uh, 2020 he he won handily even with um, liberals he he won handily and independents so most of the state would probably agree that we want somebody in governance that's going to be a lot like Doug Ducey but then you look at these you look at the Katie Hobbs race and and Carrie Lake and that goes against what I'm talking about. So it's it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint what does an era of a typical Arizona voter look like. You know, I I was really confused, like most, with the election results because I thought maybe I live in my own sphere, my own bubble, and I'm just not aware of most Arizonans' mentalities. But I can tell you, I sit with a lot of people on a on a daily basis and over the course of the week. And very rarely do I find somebody that disagrees or we're, we're not on the same page as far as conservativeness or on the scale of conservative liberal. Uh, there might be more that are a little bit more towards the middle or more to the right than me, but very rarely do I have a Katie Hobbs mentality in my office. And so, and I don't say that lightly. I'm, I, I mean, I say that to say I have a pretty good pulse on on the political feelings of most people here in Arizona because you and I deal with them every day. In Yuma. In Yuma. In Yuma. Yeah, but they're all County. over. They're from all, yes, but they're from Oregon. They're from Washington State. They're from Montana. They're from California. Very rarely do we find individuals. I can count on my hand as we go through things and things come up. I can tell, and, and I've had conversations with other people that are more on that far spectrum in my office, it doesn't affect our business at all. We're still gonna, we're still friends. We do business. We might differ on on certain issues, social issues, and things like that, and we talk about those. But we don't get mad at each other. We don't. We just that person will express their point of view. I express my point of view. I try to listen to theirs, and we try to come to a consistent consensus. But very rarely do I find my my opinion being too far off base with those that I meet with. Yeah, and I think everyday people. 
are, are not actually being portrayed accurately um, by the talking heads in the media on both sides because the talking heads are, you know, these people, they want to teach transgender fluidity in the schools and critical race theory and they want your children to be indoctrinated no matter what or the other people they want their parents to have 100% say and and the teachers don't have any influence over your child's education and so there's there's a huge divide there and i think most of us agree well the teachers are there they've they've gone through the the process of learning how to educate others they they're genuinely inclined to want to help the children learn and the actual indoctrination part is 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 very minimal as far as or if any issue and I think most of us agree on that. We don't want our kids to be indoctrinated. We want them to be educated on both sides of the aisle. I think we believe that. But if you were to look at, at the media, it's like you got to choose one extreme or the other. And I don't think that most people are in that camp. What, the one headline that I really didn't like after all this was, it turns out, it was something to the effect of, it turns out when you take away a person's right to choose that uh, people don't like that. And they respond at the polls. I'm thinking, eh, I don't think Roe v. Wade had a lot to do with this, but maybe I'm just in my own bubble. I think, uh, but right, I choose but, abortion. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. It, that, that was what, that's the liberal spin on this is, and all the talking heads, you know, it's Trump. Trump is not effective. And, um, Roe v. Wade killed the, the Republican party. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, it was a Supreme court case. Um, and so it's supposed to be apolitical, but, at the same time, Roe v. Wade was very political, and it didn't hinge on any constitutional doctrine at the time. And uh, so, number one, from the legal aspect, that that opinion in Casey that just came out, uh, that that needed to happen a long time ago, sooner rather than later. It just took so mu- so long to have the right set of facts come through the court system. But to say that that's a indictment on the Republican party or for a conservative, I, I don't, I don't fall in line with that mentality. But the other side could have used that to, you know, garner up more support fundraising or to get the vote out. I mean, that could have just been used to, to, you know, energize their base. What's funny is I saw most of this on Twitter and it was all these white male guys talking about it like they're they're the ones on twitter and on instagram and on, on, like blasting things on facebook the, you know yeah you, white women's white right to choose that's why the republicans lost and they're like these liberals i'm like, like what do you care you're well, a white it's freaking 25 year old male what do you care vasectomies went up like 400 <laughs> percent seriously wow after that uh, decision came out that's and awesome. it's like well that's good right if you don't want to have a kid then you take steps to prevent take steps that. to prevent it. I mean, the first thing is is be a moral individual and don't go out being promiscuous. I guess the second step, if you can't, you know, control yourself, then get the snip, right? If you don't want to have kids. So here, here's another issue that that I think is really important because <laughs> we want to touch that one. No, you know, Maricopa is a laughing stock of the, the voting world out there you know it's anywhere from london to australia to dc they're, they're talking about how incompetent maricopa is for not being able to count the ballots and uh, another issue here is whether or not the votes that came in were from genuine individuals and there there was a proposition about that for uh, voter identification to make sure that the, this was a clean fair election the law would require that the voters write their birth date and a government-issued identification number and their signature on any 
mail-in ballot. And then if they showed up in person to vote, that they have to show a state-issued ID and that the DMV would be required to issue those IDs without any charge for voting purposes. So it wouldn't discriminate against anybody that... uh, doesn't drive or doesn't have the money to or an ID. You don't have to drive to have an ID. You don't have to drive to have an ID, but you do have to pay to get an ID, a state issued ID. And it's, it's a pretty nominal fee, but it's $15 or something like that. In this case, if it's for voting purposes, there would be no fee. That's, that's what this proposition was putting forward. And, uh, that's a no brainer. Everybody, everybody, that should be a hundred percent. Yes. On that. Why would you not want to, have identification when you vote or require identification when you vote. Uh, I think we all think it's reasonable and necessary, us in our profession, for people to provide identification when they're signing their will. I want to know that when you're um, putting forth the wishes of John Doe, you are actually John Doe. Well, why not that for governing other people and how their lives are going to be handled. This is not just your life anymore. This is how the government is going to manage all of our lives. So we want to know that you're the one at least putting forth the vote. I think, so in Arizona, you mentioned these three states that actually put in place some sort of voter reform, let's call it, identification laws, and those all turned red uh, or remained red or were stronger red this cycle so far is what we're seeing. Well, they saw the red wave. Right, we predicted a red wave. It happened in Georgia. It happened in Florida. It happened in Virginia. All of those states were typically indicators of what the rest of the nation would would do and follow. All those states had some type of voting identification requirements re- reformed since the last 2020 election. My question is, why didn't that happen here in Arizona? What, and the reason why is because we had a Republican-controlled House and Senate, and we had a Republican governor. So why did that not just cruise through those implementations? I guess what you're reading here in the proposition that was proposed, I think the the way that they tried to do it, it's not that they didn't try to do it, but they tried to do it through voter initiative because a voter initiative would have altered most likely the Constitution of Arizona, which is very difficult to change once it's been voter approved. And I think that was the route that they went. I think it would have been wiser had they just used the power that they had at the time when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the governorship and just put these reforms in place prior to this 2022 cycle. Well, I think they saw what um, Georgia went through when they did this. And, and Georgia was being called, you know... Racist. Racist. And, yeah, and, and Stacey Abrams, right? A, a Jim Crow state, that it was, it was a recycling of the Jim Crow laws. And... Uh, They didn't like that. I don't think they liked the negative press, and I think the press scared them off. I think you're right. We got to go. This has been quite the show, (laughs) but we'll talk to you next week. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, 
and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.